the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice, he gave up the use of his office. Thanks, Dan. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Catherine Elizabeth Clark. She's the author of Where I End, the story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. We'll also hear later in the 5 o'clock hour from Jonathan Morrow, Generation Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation. Very relevant You'll want to stick around for that. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines. Dozens of Capitol Police officers stood at attention as um, his urn was carried up the Capitol steps. Lawmakers and others held another memorial service today for Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick in the Capitol Rotunda, where he's been lying in honors since Tuesday evening after dying last month from injuries suffered during the January 6th riot at the building that he helped defend. There will be a send-off ceremony outside the steps of the Capitol before his remains are transported to Arlington National Cemetery, a cemetery we were told earlier in the day where they were interred. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi delivered remarks on Wednesday, Wednesday rather, to the uh, distinguished guests, which included members of the U.S. Capitol Police, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, as well as the Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. Well, the Air Force Band singing sergeants sang a rendition of America the Beautiful, and it was said by Nancy Pelosi, through the heroism of Officer Sicknick and those who serve our country, God has truly shed his grace on us, on America, from sea, brotherhood, from signing sea to sea. May it be a comfort to Officer Sicknick's family that so many mourn with them and pray for them during this sad time, end quote. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer also delivered remarks, uh, beginning with an acknowledgement to the Bible's book of Matthew, which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Schumer said from speaking with Sicknick's family members after he uh, passed, he learned that the officer's mother and aunt both graduated from the same high school in Brooklyn. Sicknick was a New Jersey native, a National Guard veteran, and a 12-year member of the Capitol Police Force. He was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, although he was precisely where he intended and needed to be on a day peace was shattered that Brian and his family were made to pay such a high price for his devoted service to the capital was a senseless tragedy one that we are still grappling with it's left deep scars in the building as have the tragic deaths of two of Brian's fellow officers in the days since his passing Senator Schumer also um, mental health counseling announced rather that it was available to officers who continue uh, to recover from the injuries related from that riot. In other news, FBI agents uh, slayed in Florida drew President Biden's grief after the first major law enforcement tragedy of his presidency. Joe Biden expressed condolences to the families of those two FBI agents that were killed on Tuesday while trying to serve a warrant in connection with a child pornography violence uh, against children investigation in Florida. They put their lives on the line and it's a, well, heck of a way 
um, a, a heck of a price to pay, paraphrasing there. The president said from the Oval Office, and every single day, by the majority, the vast majority of these men and women are decent, honorable people who put themselves on the line. We owe them. That uh, little proviso raised some ire uh, in the context of uh, these two FBI agents' deaths and law enforcement in general. But the president went on to say that he had not yet had the chance to speak with the victims' families and didn't uh, plan to do so on Tuesday. The shootout took place at about 6 a.m. that left two FBI special agents dead, two in a hospital and another with minor injuries. The suspect was also killed. He apparently monitored their approach on one of those cameras one can simply place in their home and open fire as they approach to uh, issue a warrant. FBI Director Christopher Wray, he identified the two slain agents as Daniel Alphen and Laura Schwarzenberger. It was the deadliest day for the FBI since the terror attack of September 11th. 2001, to put that into context. In other developments, the Florida FBI agent who was killed fought child exploitation in the field and educated students in the classroom. The FBI overhauled their weapons and armor for agents after a deadly Florida shootout some 35 years ago. And the FBI's January gun background check statistics show that people are buying firearms at a blistering pace. That's the phrase they chose, according to experts. Well, Ilhan Omar, Representative for Omar, is being targeted by the GOP for removal from House committee assignments as the Democrats are focusing on Representative Green. The back and forth continues. House GOP lawmakers say that they're seeking this week to oust U.S. Representative Omar from her committee assignments as Democrats push for similar action against U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Both have expressed and held views that are controversial. A GOP proposed measure calls for Omar, frequently identified as a member of the squad of progressive Democrats, to be removed from her committee assignments in light of conduct she has exhibited. Congressional correspondent Chad Pergam reported that in the the amendment, Republicans argue that Omar has made anti-Semitic comments that are grounds for dismissal. Her office didn't uh, respond to a request for comment, but the uh, Democrats have uh, made it quite clear they intend to try to remove the GOP representative from her committee assignments. Meanwhile, nuclear war with China or Russia is a real possibility. That's according to the U.S. Strategic Command or STRATCOM commander. The head of the U.S. Strategic Command is calling for military and federal leaders to reimagine methods of deterring aggressive action from rivals such as China and Russia, including the real possibility of nuclear war. Are you, By the way, are you praying? Are you on your knees? Are you crying out to God? Anyway, in a stark assessment of the current geopolitical landscape, STRATCOM Commander Admiral Charles Richards, he warned that China and Russia have begun to aggressively challenge international norms in ways not seen since the height of the Cold War. Richards cited a rise in cyber attacks and threats in space, as well as their investment in advanced arms, such as nuclear weapons. STRATCOM is responsible for the U.S. nuclear deterrent. Well, there is a real possibility that a regional crisis with Russia or China could escalate quickly to a conflict involving nuclear weapons if they perceived a conventional loss would threaten the regime or state. That's what he wrote in a February issue rather, of Proceedings, the U.S. Naval Institute's monthly magazine. Consequently, he went on to write, the U.S. military must shift its principal assumption from nuclear employment is not possible to nuclear employment is very is a very real possibility and act to meet and detour that reality. Very sobering report.
In other developments, North Korea likely had help from China in developing a new submarine-launched missile, according to Gordon Chang. And another report says that China will double its arsenal of nuclear warheads. While a World Health Organization team visited the highly high-security Wuhan virus lab at the center of a COVID-19 speculation, and White House Press Secretary Saki is being accused of making fun of the newly formed Space Force, refusing to apologize, but backtracking somewhat on the Biden's seriousness on the um, new branch of the U.S. military. And Putin critic Navalny is uh, defiant during his prison sentencing on old charges. And another significant news, LeBron James Heckler issued an apology after her courtside spat, saying, I take full responsibility. Now, it really isn't big news. You had very high paid athlete being yelled at by an influencer in quotes, um, also referred to as a Karen. But at least in this one incident that resulted in her being rejected from the game or rather ejected from the game, she took responsibility for her comments and apologized. I wouldn't mind seeing that, you know, more often. Anyway, President Biden continues on an unprecedented pace of executive orders. On Sunday, 25, 10 presidential memos and four proclamations. He defended himself with this twisted excuse, I'm not making new law, I'm eliminating bad policy. That's a new way to describe it. Then comes this from Katie Pavlich. President Joe Biden signed a series of illegal immigration executive orders from the White House Tuesday evening, inching the total number of executive actions to nearly 50 since taking office just two weeks ago. By the way, yesterday, or maybe it was this morning, there were about three or four uh, with regard to immigration to add to that number. Democrat Senator Joe Manchin has rejected the party line vote on a COVID package. The West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin said that he will vote in a bipartisan way on the COVID-19 relief package and ruled out voting the package with a simple party line majority through the budget reconciliation process. And that, of course, would require fewer uh, senators to vote in favor of. A Maryland health official proposed that public school teachers get the vaccine over private school teachers, even though the public school teacher is teaching remotely and the private school teacher is in the classroom with students. I love to see science playing out. Well, Texas is defunding uh, Planned Parenthood. That started yesterday. It took a court victory to find it stick. Meanwhile, South Carolina is uh, one step uh, closer to passing a fetal heartbeat bill. Well, they're telling us that COVID news is looking up. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Wednesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing. Later this hour, we'll hear from Catherine Elizabeth Clark. Where I End is the title of her book, A Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope. That's coming up later this hour on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, they tell us that COVID news is looking up. Now, those two things seem a bit incongruous, but we'll, we'll see what they have to say. Guy Benson points out that America's COVID data is dramatically improving. Couple that with the existing vaccine ramp up and the likelihood of an additional vaccine, which is also very effective, especially at preventing severe cases of coronavirus getting approved in the coming weeks. And there's additional cause for optimism. Now sprinkle in game changing testing innovations and uh, the sense that we're turning the corner becomes even more immediate and encouraging. I like that version of it. You can read more on Town Hall, the uh, uh, website dot com. But Scott Gottlieb points out that some good news this week. Johnson and Johnson's vaccine looks likely to become the third U.S. COVID-19 vaccine to enter the market. The company released data this week showing the vaccine is about 70 percent effective against the virus. And its version requires only one shot. 
The Food and Drug Administration will need to review the evidence thoroughly, but the preliminary data is promising. The company is collecting more information to determine whether a booster shot should provide even better protection. And the New York Times breaks down a number of, um, uh, if interesting, a coronavirus, uh, rather a number of interesting coronavirus stats, including this. While 5% of the country's cases have occurred in long-term care facilities, deaths related to COVID-19 in these facilities account for about 34% of the country's pandemic fatalities. Now, getting the vaccine to the people who are or will be eligible for it, that's a whole other side of the coin, but at least we do have some uh, pharmaceuticals that will help us. Well, Maryland is considering a bill to remove police officers from schools. The two Maryland stories in one day. Well, some places are a special like that. From the Police Tribune, a controversial bill is making its way through the Maryland State House that would take school resource officers, they're known as SROs, out of uniform and out of the school buildings across the state because their presence is traumatizing to some students. Maryland Senator Arthur Ellis, who authored the legislation, told the Police Tribune that Senate Bill 245 wasn't created to get rid of SROs, but rather to get them out of the routine discipline of students. But Ellis also said during the Charles County Board of Education meeting that state lawmakers, uh, he was concerned about the perception of these officers by minority students following the state-sponsored murder of George Floyd. George Floyd by police. Senate Bill 245 would uh, only allow school resource officers to enter school buildings under specific circumstances and mandate that they wear civilian clothing and conceal their guns. Meanwhile, Denzel Washington, and perhaps a career-altering move, has expressed his utmost respect for law enforcement. While promoting his latest film in which he plays a law enforcement officer, oh, there's the connection, he said, I, am the, I have the utmost respect for what they do, for what our soldiers do, people that sacrifice their lives. I just don't care for people who put those kind of people down. If um, it weren't for them, we would not have the freedom to complain about what they do, end quote. One well, in the impeachment as it moves forward, sham, constitutional, you can decide as uh, we see next week. The Democrats' impeachment case argues that Trump was singularly responsible for the Capitol riot, while Trump's lawyers have offered Trump's constitutional answer to impeachment, saying he holds no public office from which he can be removed. We'll see how that argument holds up as at least 45 uh, Republican senators have argued this whole process is a sham and unconstitutional. We'll see who holds up uh, su- sufficient muster to win that day, which, by the way, is a week uh, from yesterday. And government and politics, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, they struck a deal on a Senate power sharing agreement. And with 28 executive orders signed in just two weeks, Biden is off to a record start. Is it a good start? We'll continue to follow the stories. Unity, well, the House starts a work on coronavirus relief with the White House press secretary warning that President Biden won't slow down for Republicans. So I guess unity, not so much. The Senate confirmed Pete Pothole Problem Buttigieg as Transportation Secretary and uh, Alejandro Mayorkas has been confirmed as Department of Homeland Security Secretary as well. In a critical roadblock, Joe Manchin says he doesn't support raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour. On the left media, Can I Live Without Trump? Well, CNN's primetime ratings crashed some 44% in the first week of the Biden era. Now, this always happens when there's a change of administration and there's a dramatic ideological change. One side of the um, media continuum or the other uh, loses airtime, loses eyes and ears. Uh, this time, CNN, there was concern that, that uh, Fox News, for example, lost um, – 
when the tables turned before. But as has been pointed out numerous times over the years, the media loved Trump when he first announced his candidacy and even tacitly as president because he drove ratings. And that's what big media is about, which means more money for their coffers. Take Trump out of that equation, though, and those ratings suddenly crater. As one uh, author put it, the chickens home to roost. Again, CNN losing 44 percent in the first week of the Biden era. We'll see how that holds. In health, feds will start uh, shipping COVID vaccines directly to pharmacies, we're being told. I'm not sure what that means in terms of accessing them and to whom they'll be available. But the number of Americans vaccinated against COVID-19, that's 26.5 million, is now greater than the official number who have been infected, which is 26.5. Three million for what it's worth. Keep in mind, though, that the true number of infected Americans is presumably tens of millions higher. So the bottom line, we don't really know. Well, people with COVID antibodies may only need one vaccine dose, we're being told, but we don't really know that either. In national security, the White House has confirmed that the U.S. Space Force will continue under a Biden administration, according to Press Secretary Jen Circleback Saki, uh, we look forward to continuing work of Space Force and invite the members of the team to come visit us in the briefing room anytime to share an update on their important work. Revealingly, however, her important work talking point came only hours after laughing at, belittling, and critiquing the Space Force. Well, in business and the economy, Archenemy of Liberty Jeff Bezos says he's stepping down as the Amazon CEO, although he'll hold a position. And Amazon is reporting the first $100 billion quarter. Well, Texas lawmakers have introduced bills to protect the dignity of women's sports, if women's sports will continue, as we've known it. And local Kroger stores closed, or rather a local Kroger store in Long Beach, California. Their hero pay ordinance apparently backfired. Well, the left media are um, aiming to restore net neutrality rules, but they want to go even much further, and we'll continue to follow that story. You can read more at the uh, Washington Examiner if you're interested. And the Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny has been sent to prison on an old conviction. Uh, What that sentence is, I'm not quite sure, but we'll continue to follow that story. Captain Obvious, the headline award, a poll. Most people in the U.S. are overwhelmed by issues facing the nation. Well, there are an overwhelming wash of issues that are facing the nation. But of course, those of us who are followers of Christ are not just U.S. citizens. We're not just residents of Oregon. We're not just uh, people living in Multnomah, Washington County or uh, in Clark County. We are people who are whose residency primarily lies elsewhere. So we might be overwhelmed by the issues and the inability of humankind, of mankind, to make good, sound decisions in the best interests of the people over whom they govern we have um, we have other sources that give us the capacity to experience a peace that reflects something that uh, doesn't uh, have uh, doesn't really diminish with the headlines. So I hope we're all taking our rightful place, being very sober about what's going on in the world, being very serious about the problems we face and the need for people who are trusting God, who are standing firm, who can encourage their neighbor and support and provide them with light that is not available in Washington, Olympia or Salem or the uh, city halls all across the country. Most people in the U.S., this poll, uh, UPI poll says, are overwhelmed by the issues facing the nation, and I would say rightly so. Ah, but there's more to the story. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit and the promises of your word. You know, we cover what's going on in the world here uh, because it's important for us to know that, but my hope is not certainly in what I'm 
sharing in these uh, these issues. My, I'm not wringing my hands thinking, oh, I sure hope Biden makes all the right decisions so we can be saved. Now my hope is elsewhere. And so while having read the scriptures and understand the human heart, I'm not surprised by virtually anything I see and um, and read. I am emboldened by the Holy Spirit given to every believer to move forward um, in his name. By the way, this day in history, 1959, the day of the music died, rock and roll stars Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. the Big Bopper. Richardson died in a small plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa. 1690, which is considerably sooner, the first paper money in America is issued by the Massachusetts Bay Colony to finance a military expedition to Canada. 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution providing for a federal income tax is ratified. And 1966, the Soviet probe Luna 9 becomes the first man-made object to make a soft landing on the moon. 1988, the U.S. House of Representatives hands President Ronald Reagan a major defeat, rejecting his request for $36.2 million in new aid to the Nicaragua Contras by a vote of 219 to 211. And finally, 1995, Discovery blasts off with a woman, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Eileen Collins, in the pilot's seat for the first time in NASA history. Coming up, we'll hear from Catherine Elizabeth Clark, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Kate Clark was a wife, an active mother of two. In 2009, she lived in Michigan when a tragic playground accident left her paralyzed from the neck down. Well, after surgery for her injured spine, she was told that she would likely never walk again. Facing the possibility of a life without being able to hug her children, to walk independently or hold her husband's hand, she prayed a prayer of rebellious hope and asked God for a miracle. Her book, Where I End, A Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope, she tells her story of miraculous recovery. Working with doctors and nurses at a rehabilitation clinic, she began improving in the months after her injury, eventually walking on her own. Her recovery was stunning, yet she wrestled with deep grief. Given a miracle, she still feels pain from her injury. How can she be grateful for her recovery while still grieving for the abilities she's lost? And why did she recover when patients she met with similar injuries did not? What good will come out of this tragic event? Well, her story reminds us that God is with us and faithful even in difficult circumstances. And while she experienced something miraculous, she's also endured suffering. She still lives in a broken world, experiencing pain from her injuries and limitations, even in her healing. Where I End reminds us all that God can bring unexpected good out of our suffering and that to have faith is to have rebellious hope. Catherine Elizabeth Clark is a wife to a gifted theologian and a mom of two bright kids all of whom bring merriment and humor to her days. She's a native of Detroit. She has uh, had the privilege of living in several great cities, including Toronto, Grand Rapids, and Chicago. With a background in psychology, she spent much of her last 20 years working and writing for a nationwide Christian radio and counseling ministry. The Clarks live in Wheaton, Illinois, and she joins us today to talk about her book, simply titled Where I End, A Story of Tragedy, Truth, and Rebellious Hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us the story of your accident? Sure, I would love to. Um, So it was a pretty typical day uh, as they start out, and I was at my son's school, and it was such a lovely day that we decided to stay for recess. My daughter was four years old, and she was with me on this day. And my son kind of disappeared in a field far beyond uh, the school. My daughter was uh, 
swinging on the playground, and I kind of had just suggested a game of tag to the kids who were hanging on me. And, you know, before I knew it, we were just racing uh, about the playground, just having a wonderful time. I'm laughing. Um, I'm beating these kids at their own little game. There's several of them is um, chasing me because, as you probably um, have witnessed before, whenever an adult jumps into a game, pretty much all the kids are <laughs> on that adult. So I have this growing kite string of kids on my heels, um, and I'm having a lot of fun. Um, but unbeknownst to me, at the same time we were having this game, there was a young boy who was climbing a large play structure full of tubes and slides. And he made his way to the top slide, um, and he just really wasn't very tempted by the slides. And instead, he had another idea. It was a little ill-fated. Um, but he climbed over the protective barrier, and just uh, as I was running, he bounded into the air. And his sneakers crashed on my head, mm. and the two of us just tumbled to the ground, and immediately um, his elbow shattered, and I was paralyzed from the neck down. <sighs> What a what a tragedy. Now, at that moment, were you aware of the fact that you were unable to move? And how did you rally uh, someone to come and help? Right away, I knew um, that it was serious and that I couldn't move. Um, I could hear a little girl screaming for the boy to get off of me. And I didn't even know that he was on me. So I was just, I was lying on my back. Um, I never lost consciousness. Um, and I think just between the boys' screams that his arm was broken, um, people became aware pretty quickly that something had happened. And so pretty soon a second-grade teacher was at my side. Someone whisked the boy away right away to the office, and she just knelt down by me. And I think she, too, she said later she could just tell by the way um, I was laying on the witch heads, one flip flop on, one off. Um, she just had, she just knew it was bad. Um, and so eventually I think, you know, she's praying and hoping it's kind of like that moment in a football game where, if, you know, you just kind of wait a few minutes and that stunned person kind of rallies themselves and gets up. But that moment just did not happen. And, and um, I told, I told her, I just said, I, I need an ambulance. And someone held a phone to my ear. My husband was at home at the time working on his uh, dissertation. And so he was up at the school within a few minutes and, you know, found our kids and prayed with them and then was um, taken to the hospital with me. Now, was the prognosis immediate that it's not likely that you're going to walk again or did you have to have a surgery for them to make that determination? So... I think when the MRI results came back, that's when they knew it was really bad. Um, you can, I can still picture the hair doctor's face coming into um, back into the room, and you know, just all hope had drained from his face. And he told us um, that they were looking for a surgeon who was willing and able to perform the operation. He said that there was obvious damage to the spinal cord. And when the surgeon came in, he um, he really didn't mince words. He just said, this is a Christopher Reeve-level injury. Um, it is dangerously high. It is um, bad. It's, um, it's just one vertebrate lower than where Christopher Reeve was injured. So 
Um, I was not on a ventilator um, at that time. I had a ventilator inserted for surgery. Um, I had surgery that evening. And when I came out of surgery, the doctor told my family and friends who were waiting that um, he was hopeful that I would come off the ventilator. And beyond that, hope was really discouraged. Hmm. We're talking this afternoon about uh, Catherine Elizabeth Clark's um, very difficult circumstance in her book, Where I End, a story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue her story in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with Catherine Elizabeth Clark. Her book is titled Where I End, and in it she writes a prayer for favor, adoration, and trust began on the playground wood chips. It was uttered by friends and family in some form or another in the hospital waiting room. This prayer would become the heartbeat of my broken life over the next days, months, year. It's still today indoors. You uh, just hours earlier had been an active mother of two. Uh, You now, due to a tragic accident, uh, have endured surgery, but have been told, your family at least, has been told that it's not likely that you will ever recover your ability to function um, and use, uh, walk again and use your limbs. At that point, as a, as a believer and having prayed the prayer of, uh, of, for recovery, where do you go from there, and and how did you experience the miracle that surprised everyone? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. So we were very um, fortunate and blessed to be a part of a Christian community. And Grand Rapids, I don't know if you know much about that, but it's this great little Dutch community. Um, we're not from that area, but we instantly had... Um, lots of friends and family who surrounded us. And one of the lovely things I think about being a part of community is that, you know, when maybe you're even in a place where you don't have the hope um, or the faith that the community really can hope um, and even trust in God for and with you. And so we leaned into uh, the truth that we knew that our Heavenly Father could heal, and we hoped that He would. Um, it certainly was uh, an interesting and um, challenging parenting moment, especially for my husband. Uh, my daughter, who was four, had asked her daddy if it was okay that I would walk again. And so it was a real moment of um, do we believe what we say we believe? And he told her, do indeed pray that mom can do that, um, even though the doctor said it wouldn't be possible. And so um, we were um, overjoyed to find that the Lord um, answered affirmatively um, to those prayers. Um, And I don't have, Georgine, one of those uh, pick up your mat and walk moments that's Mm -hmm. not my story. Um, But what I did have um, was these just little itty-bitty pieces of progress. Uh, started with my left foot, and I could move that foot, and I moved it pretty much constantly because it was this little piece of normal that I gained. And then uh, little by little, we saw improvements. And so for, for me, uh, it was a journey of relearning everything um, from you know, crawling, standing, you know, walking, holding a spoon. And it was a a very long, arduous uh, process. Um, But we we had, like I said, a great community that saw us through it. Um, And I also was so very...
very grateful for just the sweet presence of the Lord throughout it. Um, it is a true statement that Jesus Christ is present with us in our suffering, and I, I am living testimony of that truth. You write about the fact that you were given a miracle, but that you also st- still feel pain uh, from your injury. Um, which is a constant reminder of the event that resulted in um, your incapacitation. Describe a little bit of your capacity now and the pain that has been a part of your recovery. Sure. So I do. Everything from the neck down is is technically broken, if you will, although you might not know it just by looking at me. Um, I like to say that I was raised wounded, uh, and the truth is that though I can do a lot of things, there are many things um, that I can't do. I have... um, It's kind of like wearing mittens if you were to put them on your hands and constantly go through life like having gloves on. I don't have great fine motor skills, to say the least. Um, I also have um, muscle issues. I have um, spatial issues, like my body doesn't quite understand with my my brain uh, where I am in space, which kind of results in, you know, burns and bruises and things like that. Um, My right side is weaker than my left, which isn't great for things like balance, I'm not able to run. I was a runner. So I just have a lot of, um, and then, the, well, the main thing is that I also have something called um, like a chronic nerve pain. It's kind of like this crazy buzzing, angry bees um, sensation that I have pretty much constantly. Um, and so I take medicine that can curb it, but it's not been able to eliminate it. So I do live very much in that middle place of gratitude and grief. Uh, my family and I know very well what it is like to uh, not be able to do anything. My kids have memories of feeding me and driving my power wheelchair, um, and yet I'm incredibly. Um, and so I, I, you know, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm not there, uh, and I can stand before you and, and say, "This is an amazing thing that the Lord has done." And yet, um, I have a body, and it doesn't work as it was um, created to work. And so I think it's also, you know, I have I live in a grief place as well um, and look forward to a day when that will, will not be. You deal with a lot of suffering in your story, uh, both in the accident and your recovery. What do you think uh, some uh, are some of the things that people get wrong about suffering? We tend to, in our culture, to assume that suffering is evidence that somehow um, God has abandoned us or that he's displeased with us. What do we get wrong in our understanding of suffering? Mm, that is true. I think that... Um when we are suffering, we often do think that we are somehow outside of the grip or the care of our Heavenly Father. Um, pain has a way of isolating us, not just from um, from one another. Um, you can be in a room full of people and not know that some of them are in a tremendous amount of pain, be it emotional or physical. Um, and it also makes us feel isolated sometimes from God. And I think that there, you know, there are a few things that I think that we sometimes um, get wrong about suffering. One is that I think that sometimes we have a hard time as Christians um, letting people grieve. I think we sometimes really want to, you know, skip to the be thankful and God is going to work this out for good and we want to be positive. And those are, I mean, it is a lovely truth that God works all things um, 
for hit for good. Um, and yet, I think we just want to be careful as as Christians that we aren't saying that in order to, you know, skip or to stunt that grieving process. So mm-hmm. um, we very much, you know, n- need to grieve. And we have good evidence of that. We've seen Jesus Christ, who knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be amazing. And yet he weeps. Um, he And I just love that story, that he stops and he weeps, even though he knows he's going to work something for good. Um, So I think that's one thing. Um, But on the flip side of that, I I also think that sometimes we let grief have a primary place in our lives. And grief never gets to really be the star of our story. Um, So I think it's really important to know that as Christians, we're also called to live with a great deal of grit um, and perseverance, courage of heart. So I think that those are two kind of um, sides of uh, the suffering or traps that we can fall into. Well, the book is beautifully written. You tell your story well, and it challenges all to consider uh, the goodness of God, even in the very difficult circumstances. Again, the book is titled Where I End, the story of tragedy, truth, and rebellious hope. Catherine Elizabeth Clark is the author, and it's published by Moody. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be with you. Appreciate it very much. She writes, we belong in the light, but we live in the shadow, the shadow of brokenness, of despair, of sickness and sin. We do not, however, live alone in the shadow. We are joined by the triune God who suffers with us. The enemy whispers, you are alone, you are not seen, nor are you loved. The blood and wounds of Jesus, however, say otherwise. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. In the latter part of today's uh, second hour, we're going to hear from Jonathan Morrow. If you want to know what Gen Z is all about, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation, he's uh, going to join us. The book is published by Barna Group to talk a bit about Gen Z so we can better understand and perhaps uh, even influence the next generation. By the way, hope for this present crisis. Dr. Michael Yosef is uh, leading the way, has a new book releasing soon. It's called Hope for the Present Crisis. I mention it because this is a great book to add to your arsenal in understanding the culture. Well, this month you can pre-order Dr. Yosef's new book, Hope for the Present Crisis, for a gift of any amount when you contact the ministry. The book does not release until the 2nd of March, but you can pre-order your copy now and receive a pre-order bonus download. Just go to kpdq.com and look for Hope for This Present Crisis to pre-order your copy today. Again, a great book to add to your arsenal of understanding. Well, Senator Schumer says that a power-sharing agreement has been reached with the Republicans and Democrats can take control of the committees. The majority leader announced uh, that he and minority leader Mitch McConnell have finally reached an agreement on a power-sharing resolution. Now, that move would allow the Democrats to take control of committees, uh, which they would have been uh, locked out of without a deal. Uh, He says, and I'm quoting, I am happy to report this morning that the leadership of both parties have finalized the organizing resolution for the Senate. And this, of course, is because there's a 50-50 split. We will pass the resolution through the Senate today, which means that committees can promptly set up and go to work with Democrats holding the gavels. Uh, The New York Democrats 
of the Senate earlier today. He added that he's confident our members are ready to hit the ground running on the most important issues facing the country, end quote. Well, an agreement between the two Senate leaders is required to figure out how power would be divided as the upper chamber has a 50-50 split. Vice President Kamala Harris is able to break ties. Now, it's not clear how soon any agreement could be passed because all 100 senators would have to agree on how to speed up a vote on the measure. But the agreement came as Senator Lindsey Graham, still the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, rejected a request from Democrats on Monday to schedule President Joe Biden's attorney general nominee Merrick Garland. Garland, rather, who is expected to receive bipartisan support. When the Senate's focus is required to consider whether to bar a former president from being reelected, other business must stop, he wrote earlier this week. Proceeding with the confirmation of the attorney general and the impeachment of a former president at the same time would give neither the attention required. Well, Senator Dick Durbin, the incoming Judiciary Committee chairman, then asked Graham, uh, who is still committee of the um, the panel, they could set the hearing. And unfortunately, I'm not officially the chairman. of. You know, we are in the majority because of the vote with the vice president. So I had to contact the chairman of the previous Congress, Senator Graham, who's to be succeeded by Senator Grassley, another Republican. It's a very complicated situation, Durbin told reporters. And of course, I'm finding it so you may as well. Senator John Boozman, who's a Republican from Arkansas, said that the hearing um, in a hearing, rather, for Tom Vilsack, that Biden's, who is his agriculture secretary pick, that his committee has no official chairman at the moment. So things have been in a bit of upheaval. Well, last month, uh, McConnell had sought to include language that would commit Democrats to preserve the 60-vote filibuster. He dropped that demand after Senator Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, uh, Virginia and Arizona Democrats, signaled that they wouldn't support such an initi- uh, initiative to pass major left-wing policies. So the filibuster still a factor in all of this. Also, House Democrats uh, today announced that a floor vote will be held tomorrow to remove Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments after House Republicans refused to take swift action against the conspiracy theorist Georgia Congresswoman. Uh, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said in a statement, I spoke to Leader McCarthy this morning, and it is clear there is no alternative to holding a floor vote on the Green from her committee assignments. Well, there is an alternative. They're just choosing not to embrace it. Hoyer added that the Rules Committee is scheduled to meet Wednesday afternoon, and the House will vote on the resolution on Thursday. This could set a precedent that would have a deep impact on the other side of the aisle, although it won't because the other side of the aisle holds the majority, but it could set a very dangerous precedent in terms of, and I'm not endorsing the views that have been embraced by this Republican congresswoman, but to um, deprive individuals of committee assignments based on prior statements being made, um, again, would set a, a unprecedented uh, and perhaps dangerous precedent. Yeah, not said well, but I think you get the idea. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the president signed orders on immigration, asylum and family separation to add to his growing list of um, resolutions. After a flurry of actions on the 20th of this month, the president signed a further three. I'm not making new laws, he said. I'm eliminating bad policy, which is you know an interesting way to put it. Well, the new orders seek to loosen the criterion for asylum. 
reverse the Trump administration's public charge rule, create a task force for new Americans, develop a strategy to address irregular migration across the southern border, and create a task force to reunify any remaining families that were separated during the previous administration, which is you know, almost comical if it weren't so serious and tragic, because to say this occurred during the previous administration that had uh, witnessed it during the previous administration in which he was the vice president. Anyway, Biden's strategy is centered on the basic premise that our country is safer, stronger, and more prosperous with a fair, safe, and orderly immigration system that welcomes immigrants, keeps families together, and allows people, both newly arrived immigrants and people who have lived here for generations, to more fully contribute to our country. That's the uh, fact sheet issued by the White House on February 2nd. Well, the truth is, our system is, to say it's broken is an understatement. It has spanned several uh, presidents and um, uh, several administrations. Uh, and this is just simply papering over a problem that has existed during the, his administration as vice president, the previous administration, although there were efforts to try to resolve some of those issues. And it will continue in, under a pandemic uh, that is not addressed specifically in these um, uh, in these new orders. Well, the, the president rather launched a task force to reunite families that remain separated after the adult is charged for illegally entering the country. Uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said that between 600 and 700 children were currently separated from their parents, some of which were never united with their parents, but adults who used them in order to seek access to the country. So that's a mess in and of itself. Yes, children should be reunited with their actual parents. We'll see how that goes. Um, but the uh, the mess continues, and my guess is it won't be resolved uh, in this short term. But certainly praying for justice, a, a resolution to all of this for the sake of those individuals as well as the, uh, the nas- uh, national security. So we'll continue to follow that story. Well, 10 Senate Republicans released a $618 billion counterproposal to President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package hours before they met. That was Monday evening. And they hope to find some common ground. But the two proposals have far more differences than similarities. And given the configuration in the uh, uh, in Congress, it's not likely to happen. Well, the $618 billion package only slightly resembles the president's, the one that was offered by the Republicans. His proposal is three times as large. It includes bigger stimulus checks for a greater number of people. And despite those differences, the senators expressed willingness to work with the president. These are the Republicans who campaigned on unity and his ability to reach across the aisle. Although the president has said that he hopes the final package is a bipartisan result, wink, wink. He also said that the final bill must be large instead of small and has faced pressure from some Democrats who want to pass his package, even if it means doing so with only Democrat votes, which is more likely than not. With your support, we believe Congress can own, uh, can once again wrap a relief package that will provide meaningful, effective assistance to the American people and set us up on a path to victory. Now, that would include a $15 minimum wage. Well, the senators plan to meet with the Biden um, who planned to meet with Biden included uh, Senator Shelley Moore Cap- uh, Capito, Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy, Maine Senator Susan Collins, um, Jerry Moran, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, and others. And while the two plans are relatively similar regarding vaccine and a certain provision for small business, they differ regarding stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, and state and local aid. It is, uh, to put it mildly, dramatic. We're going to continue to follow that story. The outcome is almost certain, but uh, watching how this notion of unity 
uh, plays out will be perhaps the most interesting element in the process. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you coming up in the second half of this second hour, we're going to talk with Jonathan Morrow, author of Generation Z. It's actually Gen Z, the culture, beliefs and motivations shaping the next generation. That's coming up uh, in the second half of uh, this hour. Well, teachers don't need coronavirus vaccinations in order for schools to reopen safely. Well, that's a quote from Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So why should we listen to her? Well, Walensky says that there is a growing body of evidence to suggest schools can safely reopen without vaccinated teachers. In other words, that's apparently science. Vaccination of teachers is not a prerequisite for safe reopening of schools, she said during a White House COVID-19 briefing today. Jeffrey Zients, COVID-19 response coordinator, reiterated President Biden's strong desire to reopen schools. That means that every school has the equipment and resources to open safely, not just private schools or schools in wealthy areas, but all schools, he went on to say. And that's why we need the American Rescue Plan passed now. Now, this is in the midst of... uh, uh, Strike threats and other schools just refusing. In fact, my guess is this 2020, 12, is that right? 2021. What year is it anyway? We're not going to see the schools open. Uh, however, the CDC is saying in order for uh, schools to safely open, for teachers to be um, protected, they don't need the vaccine. That's going to be rendered irrelevant, I'm guessing, in terms of teachers' unions' uh, push to stay out of the classroom. But President uh, Biden's COVID-19 relief plan costs about $1.9 trillion. That's part of the plan I was just mentioning earlier. And includes funding for schools, virus testing, ventilation, PPE, and proper sanitation. Um, as of last week, 38% of K-12 through public schools are still offering virtual-only classes. And about 38% are attending full in-person sessions, and the rest are on a hybrid schedule, according uh, to websites that keep that kind of data. Well, as you know, tensions are building on school system nation school systems rather nationwide to reopen the classrooms. Many teachers have yet to be vaccinated. In Chicago, where most of the attention is focused, the rancor is so great that teachers are on the brink of striking. In California, a frustrated Governor Gavin Newsom implored schools to find a way to reopen. In Cincinnati, some students returned to classrooms after a judge threw out a teachers' union lawsuit over safety concerns. And while some communities are maintaining the online classes remain the safest option for everyone, a lot of parents with backing from politicians and administrators, they're complaining that their kids' education is suffering from sitting at home in front of their computers and that the isolation is damaging them emotionally. We know that the... Um, uh, that uh, healthcare uh, pediatricians and other healthcare providers are saying the the health and um, mental health of young people is suffering dramatically, and it will be considered after this is a view from the rearview mirror a lost generation. That's a phrase I've, I'm hearing more often. A lost generation of students who, over the last two years, as they're predicting, will have lost a significant capacity to flourish. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown knew it would be a tough sell to justify her decision to offer COVID-19 vaccinations for Oregon's teachers before its elderly. But she and Patrick Allen, who's the director of the state's health authority, said they hope to soon pave the way for Oregon to reopen schools um, if daycare, preschool and K through 12 employees quickly receive inoculations against COVID-19 starting the 25th of last month. Now, we now know that the Centers for Disease Control say you don't need it, but 
They went on to say it's a relatively small population in a news conference last month. Well, as Director Allen mentioned, roughly 100,000 folks that we can vaccinate in a period of two weeks. That was something of an um, optimistic view. Well, Allen tried to temper that expectation by saying he hoped most educators would be vaccinated in two weeks. But that timeline has turned out to be misleading at best, flat out wrong at worst. The Oregonians reporting the documents generated by the Oregon Health Authority show the state has far more early learning and K-12 through employees than the governor estimated, 152,000, by the way, roughly 50 percent higher than she and Allen had said. And as a result, it could take four weeks to provide only the first shot to early learning and K-12 through workers. And that schedule assumes virtually no vaccinations for seniors 80 and older who will soon qualify, perhaps as early as next week. The governor's uh, assertion is the latest example of overpromising, shifting numbers and largely optimistic thinking that appears to be hindering the vaccine rollout as the state is moving to the second wave of eligible residents. Well, frustrations are uh, pretty high coast to coast. A lot of states have struggled to meet the demand with the limited vaccines from the federal government. But unlike some, Oregon's problem appears to be exacerbated by its own troubled planning and inability to quite get the numbers right, the timing right, and the populations right. So this overpromising is, um, once again, putting a spotlight on what's happening here in the state of Oregon. Fare thee better, I hope and pray for you on the other side of the Columbia. Well, Oregon's population growth has been s- uh, slowing for several years, but in 2020, the state hit a remarkable milestone. Deaths appear to have outnumbered births for the first time on record. Now, that may not be as surprising as one would assume under any other circumstance, but it is very sobering. Well, that's according to uh, Josh Lerner of the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis. Falling birth rates and an aging population had Oregon on track to have births outnumber deaths at some point. Lerner had uh, been projecting 2025, but COVID-19, well, it upended things. There were approximately 200 more Oregon deaths than births in uh, in 2020, according to the preliminary state numbers. That's close enough that he cautions a final tally may ultimately reverse the finding. And if the coronavirus pandemic recedes in 2021, we hope and pray it will, births will again outnumber deaths, at least for some period of time. But Oregon's birth rate is at a 30-year ebb among the nation's lowest. By the Oregon Health Authority's official tally, 1,649 Oregonians died for reasons directly related to COVID-19 from March through December last year. That's 4.1% of the nearly 40,000 deaths Oregon recorded overall in 2020. But COVID-19 accounts for a significant share of the 7% increase in the total uh, total number of Oregon deaths for the whole year. In 2020, uh, the increase was twice as fast as in 2019 and was the sharpest increase in at least 21 years. Again, not particularly surprising, I suppose, but certainly sobering. Now, Planned Parenthood is planning to push a bold agenda under the Biden administration. That's according to Planned Parenthood President Alexis McGill-Johnson in an interview. We should be pushing both agenda items in the name of building back better, she said, building back better. Planned Parenthood. Mm. Uh, We are engaging in the policy side, on the education side, on messaging and personnel, all of the ways that we think uh, can be good policymaking, but also support the use of the bully pulpit that the White House carries, she says. So not only uh, influencing or continuing their uh, influence, but also 
public policy. Last week, the president enacted policy allowing taxpayer dollars to fund abortion abroad by revoking the Mexico City policy. Days earlier, he marked the 48th anniversary of Roe versus Wade by promising to both appoint judges who respect the rule as precedent and to codify Roe versus Wade. Planned Parenthood wishes to see Roe versus Wade codified into law before the Supreme Court gets a chance to decide on the controversial ruling. With the court's new 6-3 conservative majority, there's a chance abortion would become illegal in some states if Roe were struck down. Well, Planned Parenthood is, Parenthood rather, is also um, hoping that the Biden administration will prioritize making medication abortion available during the coronavirus pandemic by ending restrictions on abortion pills many as we can get done, McGill Johnson told insiders. Uh, pro-life supporters and pro-choice advocates have fought over abortion access for months during the pandemic and certainly years before that. Pro-lifers lobbied governors to ban abortions as medically unnecessary. Pro-abortion advocates called for continued and increased abortion access despite the pandemic, all in an era in which one's views will very likely be censored if they are on the pro-life side of the ledger. So keep your eyes and ears open. Planned Parenthood is on the move. They're looking forward to working with the most abortion-friendly administration in our nation's history, and there will be work to be done. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. When we return, Jonathan Morrow, author of Gen Z, The Culture, Beliefs, and Motivations, Shaping the Next Generation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, researchers have been talking for years about generational differences, especially when it comes to young adults born between 1984 and 1998. Those are the millennials. But now there's a new generation, and they're becoming a cultural force in their own right. Produced in partnership with Impact 360 Institute, Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation, is Barna's most comprehensive research study investigating the perceptions, the experiences, and the motivations of 13 to 18-year-olds in Generation Z. The report is based on new interviews and analysis. It's uh, the best thinking that there is thus far on the worldview and priorities of teens in the next next generation. Um, also included are contributions from ministry practitioners, educators who share insights from their own vantage point, and multiple views of this multifaceted research. Uh, it's written and is must-read for pastors and teachers, parents, as they help tomorrow's Christian leaders to grow. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jonathan Morrow. He's the Director of Cultural Engagement with Impact 360 Institute to talk about this new uh, study, Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you today. Now, for many of us, we're just learning for the first time that there is such a thing as Generation Z, and we're, we're still fixated on the millennials. Describe just generally who the Generation Z generation is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the generation after millennials, and Gen Z would be born between 1999 and 2015. There's about 69 or 70 million of them or so, and it's going to be probably the largest American generation. So uh, the survey that we conducted with the Barna Group um, is based on really that teenager uh, segment, so the kind of the leading tip of the spear, tip of the edge of Gen Z. So one might assume that they are essentially just a reflection of the generation before them. They're just millennials, only younger. But there are some pretty significant differences between these generations. Yes, there are. So the way I started getting at some of those differences is, is the Barna Group's been studying you know, generations for the last 20 years, and they've asked the question, who has a biblical worldview? And so boomers, about 10% had a biblical worldview. 
Gen X, the generation after them, had 7%. Millennials had 6%. And Gen Z has 4% um, has a biblical worldview. So just at a global level, what you're seeing is that trajectory trending downward in terms of Gen Z uh, having a biblical worldview. They've got a couple other key defining characteristics um, around them that we discovered. One of them is that their views on gender and technology are very different and, and in fact, a lot more accelerated than even millennials were. And also, uh, we see that this issues around morality and spiritual confusion continue to uh, kind of become even more confused as we look at Gen Z. Now, is this uh, the, the result of the culture being very successful at, uh, at educating, if you will, young people or a failure of the church to influence young people in this Gen Z uh, to the degree that we would, would hope uh, was possible? Yes, I think both of those are um, both of those are at play. One of the things you know that we found in the study is that you know Gen Z uses screens about four plus hours a day. About fifty-seven percent do that, and so there's two things going on there. One is the exposure to the ideas and images themselves that are not necessarily building up a biblical worldview, but also just using the technology in and of itself. It's also creating a lot of anxiety and depression in this generation, and we're seeing those at really unprecedented lengths. And so Gen Z is really kind of being shaped in many ways by the screens, but also by the actual technology themselves. And so that's something that's new that we really haven't had to deal with before because, you know, Gen X parents and millennial parents are the ones raising Gen Z now. And so that that omnipresence of of screens is really a big deal. To put that in perspective... Mm You know, let's say they go to church and they have a 15-minute youth group sermon. Well, if they're on screens four-plus hours a day, which one of those do you think is going to win in terms of information? So if it's just a matter of just sheer information, it's not even close. That's one of the reasons why this generation is being shaped in a way um, against and away from a biblical worldview um, that continues that trajectory. Now, previous generations of parents had at least the perception that they had some control over what their uh, their kids uh, were exposed to millennials, uh, less so as they were growing up. But millennials, as parents, do they appreciate just how little um, control they have or influence over what their young people are exposed to because of the screen time and other resources that are available at hand and cannot be censored? You know, one of the one of the things that's interesting on that is we're finding that parents um, today are kind of being overprotective in the wrong ways and underprotective um, in the wrong ways, too. So, for example, you know, this generation, they're like, oh, let's, you know, let's put 13 helmets on and let's bubble wrap you before you go out and ride your bike, because that's dangerous. But here's a screen by the time you're four. Just play on that while I get my stuff done. And so one of the things that's happening there is there's just unprecedented um, just access to this generation. I mean, you know, one in, every, one in five searches on a smartphone is for pornography. So, I mean... Mm. It's just a very different world they're growing up in where, where, that, where that stuff finds them. And so just the law of averages with the amount of screen time. And again, Christians aren't against technology, but I think what we have to recognize is, is this is a time for, we may need to be a little more countercultural on this one because if we continue just to absorb images and information all the time, these increased rates of anxiety and depression will continue to go up among teens and uh, it's just not putting them in a healthy place, especially if we want to follow, want them to follow Jesus for a lifetime. 
Uh, you write in the preface that while it, uh, it can be tempting in our culture to only pay attention to negative trends, there are positive trends as well. And we're going to talk about those as well. I, I just want to warn our listeners that there is a, there's another side to the story as well. But what, do, what do, uh, does Gen Z believe about the biggest questions of life? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, one of the things they see is that faith and science um, are not compatible. About 24% would say that they're not compatible. Um, they're also, on um, one of the big things that shifted among this generation is their view of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and so, for example, 12% of Gen Z describe their own sexuality as something other than heterosexual. That's a pretty significant number, especially compared to millennials. 33% say gender is how a person feels and not their birth sex. That's a pretty significant um, issue. And then in terms of morality, you know, they just about 24% say that morality basically changes based on society. So in some ways, what we found when we did the focus groups with our work at Impact 360 Institute when we work with the Barna Group was there's just unprecedented moral and spiritual confusion. I mean, whether they were talking about you know, issues of sexuality or gender or God, they didn't want to offend anyone. Um, and there's part of that that's well-meaning, right? You don't want to be offensive. But there was also another part that's like, well, I guess there's not really truth on this, on this stuff. I just don't know. I'm so confused. That's what we kept seeing. And so, you know, one of the things as a whole of Gen Z is their, the rise of atheism. They're twice as likely as adults to be atheists in this generation, um, about 13%. That's pretty unusual. And so, again, these aren't going to make us run for the hills, but they do need to allow us to think about things differently to say, okay, how has this Gen Z been shaped in different ways? What are the best ways to equip them? And maybe the things that we've been doing for a long time Mm -hmm. aren't having the results that we think they are in terms of preparing them to, to live well. I suppose if we are paying attention to the culture, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that they're being shaped and influenced by the, the broader secular culture. But do you think that we have largely underestimated the, the depth of that influence? I think we have, and we haven't responded in kind. And here's what I mean by that. I think what we've done in the church, and this is well-meaning and well-intentioned, is we've tried to provide a lot of fun environments and a lot of entertainment around the church. The problem is that doesn't produce a lasting, lasting faith. It doesn't produce resilience or understanding. So what we see is they don't know much about their beliefs, and the ones they do have are getting swamped and relativized by the surrounding culture just by the sheer volume of information and media that they're taking in. And so in many ways, I think we've not adjusted to the world as it is. I still think a lot of people are seeing the world as they want it to be, And the problem is our students are just not ready when they make that switch in the high school years and head into the college years for that world. They're just kind of, you know, as my friend David Kenman at the Barna Group likes to say, you know, people are preparing these people Jerusalem when they live in digital Babylon. And there's a very different perspective that needs to be taken there. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our question. We're talking with uh, Jonathan Morrow. He's the director of cultural engagement with Impact 360. They, along with the Barna Group, produced in partnership, Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shape next generation. Uh, It's uh, an excellent resource for pastors and teachers, parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, to get a better understanding of who Gen Z is and what's uh, shaping their worldview. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing a conversation with Jonathan Morrow, he's the Director of Cultural Engagement with Impact 360 Institute, and they, along with the Barna Group, have produced uh, Gen Z, the culture, beliefs, and motivations shaping the next generation. And I think you may be surprised to to learn uh, the differences between millennials and Gen Z uh, just in that alone. It provides statistics on teens' views of themselves, their spiritual lives, and the world. It provides comparative data with older adult generations and analysis of cultural trends that are forming that generation with infographics, data visualizations, and so on. It's an excellent, timely, and very useful resource to help equip the church to minister to uh, to this generation. Uh, now, one of the things that you um, uh, that the study asks at the very beginning is: Is Gen Z prepared to follow Jesus in a post everything world? And the answer, just based on our brief conversation, would be no, not yet. How would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think I, I'm a, I love Gen Z. They're smart. They're fun. They're creative. They're passionate. They're just not ready. And part of that is because we've kind of bubble wrapped that generation. We haven't challenged them in certain ways, appropriately so. And we've not trained them. I think we've entertained them, but we haven't trained them. And those are the things that are going to have to happen if we're going to see them really succeed well. Because, again, the reality is, is our culture is moving very fast, especially on the questions of sexuality and gender. This tyranny of tolerance is kind of squashing people into this mode, saying you must agree with me if you're, if you're going to have any voice. And so kind of a Christian mindset or a Christian approach when these students kind of try to express that, they're going to wilt if they're not prepared. And so they don't know what they believe in many ways. They don't know why they believe it. And they're interacting with people more and more. I mean, 39% said they regularly interact with people who believe differently than themselves. But I don't think they're ready to to really influence in those interactions, which is what I want to see and what we're trying to do at Impact 360. Now, you made a, a, a suggestion that uh, many of us are... are uh, responding to Gen Z as if we were in Jerusalem, when in fact Babylon is a better way to describe the culture today. Daniel, Ezekiel, and other Hebrew elites, uh, they had to uh, confront the fact that they were displaced from the the, the um, tradition that they were familiar with, placed in an entirely different place. What can we learn from their example about this generation and the challenge we face as adults in the church and parents to influence them with the gospel in a way that will reach them where they are in the culture that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. So like Daniel, you know, we, we must kind of resolve not to um, defile ourselves in that sense of meaning to just take everything in from this culture. See, culture is simply what people make of the world. So culture isn't bad in and of itself. The Bible talks about world, the world system as it gets embedded in culture, which pulls people away from life with God. So every generation of Christians has had to live at the intersection of faith and culture. This is our moment, so God has sovereignly and providentially placed us here. And so we need to be bold and courageous. But where does boldness and courageous, you know, courage come from? It comes from being equipped. It comes from knowing why you believe what you believe. It comes from a, a personal relationship with God that's real, that's not... Christianity or fairy tales for grown-ups kind of idea. And so, you know, there's a sense in which we need to recognize that, um, you know, it, it isn't that everyone is celebrating the fact that you're a Christian anymore. There was a time, at least some places in the South or different parts of the country, where, yeah, I guess everybody's a Christian, right? You know, we're Americans, apple pie, and we're Christians. But that's just not the case anymore. And so we need to prepare ourselves for that. To, you know what? It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you a little bit. You're going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations, and you're going to have to think these things through. The benefit is, though, 
is is Christianity really real and true, and is that what you believe? And that's what these students are going to have to bless, believe. That's what it's, us as adults and pastors and leaders and people who care about them, we're going to have to go, you know, is this real or not? This isn't kind of pretend or just kind of everybody's doing it. And those are new things like the prophets of old and like Daniel and like his friends when they were in Babylon that they had to learn was, okay, how do we be faithful in this new environment, which isn't celebrating Christianity at every turn. How does Generation Z uh, define itself, um, and what makes them who they are? You know, it's really interesting. Probably one of the most more surprising things is professional and educational achievement was number one. Um, Gender and sexuality was also very high. Um, Family and background um, upbringing was number five, which Mm. is unprecedented in all the other generational research that Barna has done. And it's not as though family is unimportant, but this generation, in some ways, because of the environment they've been raised in and kind of a post-9-11 world, a lot of millennials were more idealists. What we're seeing among Gen Z is they're more pragmatists. They're, They're like, okay, how does this work? How do I survive? I need to have security and financial security. They say about 51% want to be happy. Happiness is the ultimate goal in life, and the way that many of them are defining that is through educational or financial success or professional success. So, so I think there's some opportunity there to help kind of recast a Christian vision of work and calling, and that's a really good thing. But this, this generation, I think, is going to be a lot more pragmatic uh, than the millennials um, were in, in the sense that they were more idealistic. What are, what are their views on faith in the church? Yeah, you know, faith in the church, one of the things that we found as they engaged on this question was was pretty interesting. One was half of church-going teens say that church seems to reject much of what science tells us. About 49% of hash, of about half of them um, said that. You know, what we also learned in the process was in terms of how important they thought the church was, um, they, they basically said, you know, more than half of Gen Z says church involvement is either not to or not at all important. So it's kind of a mixed bag. They have some positive views of the church that they feel like they can ask questions there, so that's a good thing. But more and more of them are not seeing why it's all that important. And in fact, whereas more in the millennial generation, you'd have people who had had a bad experience with Christianity or the church, and we'd have to kind of undo some of that. This generation is more of a blank slate in that sense. They're like, tell me about what do you mean by the church? I'm, I'm not even going. I'm I'm not affiliating with religion, not affiliating with Christianity, so what's the point? Tell me about Christianity. What is this? And so that's a little bit of a different posture we're seeing in this generation, uh, in Gen Z, when they talk about how they want to be involved in the church. Now, we've talked largely about things that would be very concerning to uh, to parents, grandparents, and adults who would otherwise be um, uh, be concerned. But as I mentioned earlier, there's also good news in this report. God is not surprised by the formation of a new generation. He's not taken aback, wringing his hands about what am I going to do now? This is a whole new ballgame. So this this may come as a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to God. Tell us some of the virtues of Gen Z that um, once they have uh, come to, to faith in Christ and they're serious about their faith, will translate into a powerful generation of believers that will turn the world upside down. Yeah, you know, one of the things that all this technology in a good way is, is more than any generation, if you can think it, you'll be able to do it. And that's the really optimistic side, is that they'll be actually able to 
take all that passion and the access. I mean, you can literally create movements overnight and make aware and draw awareness overnight. That's another. That's one really positive thing. Another positive thing is that nearly half of teens want factual evidence to support their beliefs. That's a really good news because when it comes to Christianity, rather than kind of this, hey, just believe it because this blind faith kind of thing, they're saying, no, we want to know what's real. Um, we have questions. And we want to know what kind of what the evidence is around that, you know, and that's an important thing. I think the fact that they want to kind of pursue an education and a career and some of those kind of things means that their views towards adulthood, I think, are a little bit more like, hey, there might be a time to actually grow up. Now, their vision of what that means will need to be informed, but there, there is a kind of a leaning towards some desire for responsibility. In fact, when we asked them which they wanted more, freedom or responsibility, responsibility just barely beat out freedom on that, um, in that sense, as they kind of defined what it means to be an adult. So I think there's some real positives about this generation. Again, they're smart, they're creative, they're passionate. We just have to find better ways of equipping yeah. them so that when they get to those moments, they're ready to have real influence for, for Christ and his kingdom. How can our listeners acquire a copy of Gen Z, The Culture, Beliefs, and Motivations Shaping the Next Generation? Yeah, they can go to whoisgenz.com. That's whoisgenz.com, and they can check out this full report as well as some other infographics and other uh, resources and articles that can help them better understand and equip engage Gen Z. Whoisgenz.com. Jonathan Morrill, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Again, uh, Jonathan Morrow is the Director of Cultural Engagement with Impact 360 Institute. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.